0: Just in that one verse, but it'll be helpful for you to have it in front of you as we go through the verse together. I'm assuming that following a Sunday afternoon conversation with his father, a conversation that was filled with complaints, the teenager, Isaac Watts, felt like he was a bird freed from a cage. Since Isaac Watts had been seven years old, he began to write poetry. And his passion for poetry, his desire to express himself, his emotions with a, a vivid and, and powerful po- poetic form increased as he got older. And so he felt trapped in some ways to know how to use this, what he thought was a God-given gift, So one day, around 1700, Isaac and his father were leaving their church service in England. And Isaac decided to warm up an old complaint. Now, you can imagine this. You're the parent of a teenager. And they just decide to warm up an old complaint. And so they come to, Isaac comes to his dad and he's complaining about the church singing. (laughs) I can hear a teenager saying that. And his problem was that it was dull and it seemed lifeless. And recalling later on that conversation with his father, Isaac Watts said this, to see the dull indifference, to to see the neglect and the thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly while the, the psalm is on their lips, it might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. You see what he's saying? I, I hear the words that they're saying and they sound powerful, but when I see their faces, when I see the expression, it just seems lifeless It it seems dull. And so isn't there some way to sort of to, to eke out this life, to bring bring this congregation to life? And so it's been a long-standing complaint with Isaac and his father. And so finally, Mr. Watts, apparently in a, a moment of just being tired, said, well, look, why don't you go and write something? better to which isaac was very happy to do and so he went home and he wrote his first hymn called behold the glories of the lamb and they sang it the next sunday and the church loved it they just came alive in a way that they hadn't previously and, and isaac in his poems and his poetry he he blew open the doors of church music to the church of england Into this whole new genre of hymn singing. And listen to just some of the lines from some of his famous hymns. The very first one, you you feel the ground breaking in the very first stanza that he writes. This is what he says, Behold the glories of the Lamb. He's trying to help them see something that's glorious amidst the Father's throne. Prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. See, there's, there's a whole trainload of songs that are coming into the church that are going to burst open and people are going to be able to sing and open up in ways. And Isaac is just the very first step saying, and here comes songs before unknown, and we're grateful for those songs, like When I survey the Wondrous Cross. You, you get a sense of his intensity. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down, did ere such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts not intended to be a Christmas song. It's actually a song brought from Psalm 98. Joy to the world. You see, his, his readiness to rejoice. He's just, he's, he's got all, if, if you're an, an artist, and I'm not, all my emotions are packed away and put somewhere and I can't find them any longer. But if you're an artist... If you're an artist, they're always right at the surface. You don't ever even have to do much for an artist. They're just always ready to spring forth. And and you you feel that with Watts. He's going, uh, joy to the world. The the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare Him room. And and heaven and nature sing. Every, Every heart's preparing room for who? The King. The king has come, and he's saying, you're going to have to empty your heart of some old things. You're going to have to expand your heart. You're going to have to prepare a room because it's much bigger than you. It's much bigger than you imagine." And, and he's coming. He, he has come. He's coming again, and he's trying to get the people to be excited about that. And so my question this morning, and it's the question the text answers, is what kind of king are we preparing room our room to receive let every heart prepare him room that the king is coming the king has come and he's saying prepare your heart and my question is what what kind of king what are the characteristics of the king that we're anticipating coming and that's where we Get help from Zechariah chapter nine. Now, let's do a little background so you can put Zechariah in a context because I think that's helpful. When, you, when you're reading one of the prophets, one of the Daniel or, or, or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jonah, you're always going to ask yourself when I'm when I'm reading this prophet, is it before the people of God, the Israelites, got exiled into Babylon or Assyria? Is he speaking to the country before they were punished and moved out? Is the prophet speaking to the period of of the exile? He's standing in this place saying, you're in exile and now I'm I'm prophesying to you. Or is the prophet talking about when the people return, when they return to build the temple under Nehemiah, when they return to rebuild the wall? Is the prophet at that point? And if you're at that point, you're called, if you're a seminary student, a post-exilic Prophet, meaning you're after the exile's over, they've come back. And Zechariah fits into that category. Zechariah's audience is a a bunch of poor people who have returned to a a broken down country. The walls are broken down, the temple's been destroyed, and they're returning to their homeland, but but their homeland doesn't look like it did when they left. They're ex-slaves, they don't have much value. And they're charged specifically here to rebuild the temple. And so you get a picture for uh, what's happening here, that, that, that the kind of situation this priest, this, this pastor is stepping into. It's a, a broken down city with mostly broken down people. And that's his congregation. That's his charge. That's his little place to enter into. And when Zachariah enters in, he's largely known as the, as the prophet of encouragement. He, he's always coming in trying to get up underneath people and give people encouragement to, to keep moving on, to keep building the temple that it's, it's worthwhile. And so as he, he comes in, he gives them a, a great hope. He gives them a vision. He, he takes the eyes of the people there, the eyes of his congregation, and he puts them up to this telescope, and he says, I, I know you're down here with all this mess, and it's broken down, and you feel like you're broken down, but I, I want you to lift your head, and I want to put your eye to a telescope, and I want you to see that a king is on his way. And when you understand that the king of kings is on his way, then that will fuel your energy to continue to work faithfully right now. Zechariah understands that when people live their lives like it's a snapshot, then when the current picture is bleak and disappointing, that they can easily get swallowed by the feelings of that moment. You, you know this. I'm sure you do. Somebody's going through a difficult time. And, and what happens is they close down and they feel like this, my life is a snapshot. My life is this moment right now. It'll never get out of this moment. I'm going to be in this dark spot forever. Forever. And you as a friend come in beside that person and say, I'm going to try to lift your head that, that your, your life isn't a snapshot. Your life is part of a, a great story. And if you can see your role in the great story, it doesn't mean this particular moment won't still be dark, but it will be dark against a, a backdrop of something glorious. And so Zacharias trying to lift their heads to say, I know it's difficult now, but a king is on his way. And so that might be encouraging to some of you all who... If you took a snapshot right now of your life, it would look pretty dark. And so Zechariah comes in alongside and says, not just any king, verse 9, your king. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-five says this, like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distance, distant land. Like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. In other words, he's saying, "I see a distant land, and I'm bringing news back from that land that will be like cold water to your weary soul." It's gonna, it's going to happen, and you're 500 years away at this particular point, but it'll be the fuel to keep mo- keep you moving forward. And so, we, when we look at Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, few uh, Old Testament prophecies. Are known better than this particular one. And Zechariah is writing in a like like Isaac Watts. He's writing in a poetic form. He's he's saying something here, and I want to examine this verse together. First, he's saying, "Rejoice," and he doesn't just say rejoice. What does he say? Rejoice greatly. I loved what one commentator said about that word rejoice. What his definition was this. There should be no measure whatever in your exaltation. There should be no measure whatever in your exaltation. When, when you see the king of kings coming, when you know he's coming, there, there's no measure in your exaltation. I don't know if you know, a few of you me- mechanics might know, do you know what a governor is? Not the governor that lives in Raleigh. That's a different kind of governor I'm talking about. I'm talking about a governor that's usually attached to a, a small engine. And a governor that's attached to a small engine is, is a device that keeps the engine from going too fast. That might destroy the engine in some way. So you, you attach this to a small engine for a safe... It's kind of a safety feature. It's called a governor. It doesn't allow you to go but a certain speed. And so what Zechariah is telling us in these opening two words, rejoice greatly, is when you see the the king coming, what he's saying is it's, it's time to detach the governor. We don't need a governor anymore in your joy. There's, there's no, nothing that should hold back in any measure the joy that you can express. There. Let, let's disregard the governor. Let's disengage. Let's disenable the governor so that we can really rejoice and see that the king of kings has come. And you get that sense in Matthew 21. Here comes the king and these poor, broken down people who are oppressed by a government say, Hallelujah, this is the person we've been waiting for. Now, little did they know. This was the person they were going to get. get. But they understood the king of kings was coming finally into the city. Something was going to happen. And the governor was disengaged. Nothing's going to hold you back from joy. And then as as if to sort of emphasize that, he doesn't want to run away from rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He just says the same thing again in a different way. Notice, shout aloud. I love the Hebrew word for shout. Ruah. Ruah. I mean, it just sounds like you shout, doesn't it? Ruah. I mean, it sounds like a Braveheart moment, you know, just Mel Gibson up and down the line. And what, what are those Scottish guys saying? You don't know. But it just sounds like, Whoa, you're Yeah, they're just shouting. It's, it's a Hebrew word for... It's a trumpet blast. It's, it's just a noise that, that, that's so loud. It's so shocking. It's so large that you couldn't help but take your eyes off of your own circumstances and wondering what the announcement is. It's, Here comes something. Here comes, here comes the king. Luke chapter 2. Uh, Angels say, I bring you good news of great joy. See, the king's on his way, and the very first emotion of the king coming is, Yes, he's finally coming. He's going to do something about me. He's going to do something about the world. He's going to do something about my circumstances. And, and when you see yourself, and the king's coming for you, your king coming, behold, he's coming to you, you shout, Yes, come, Lord Jesus, come. And there's no measure, there's no there's no sticking your hands in your pocket going, Gosh, I'm so glad the king is here. No, oh, no, no. It's raw. Yes, he's coming. And I, I, I'm, I like basketball, college basketball, so I watch the NCAA. You know, you notice this. And even if you don't really like it, you like the highlights, right? Because it's a highlight reel of like one second, you know, the one second left on the clock, and the guy hits the basket, and everybody roars, right? I mean, they just rejoice. And just this last week, there was, in, in, in sort of prelude to the tournament, there was a, um, a film, I think it's called 30 for 30 on ESPN, probably a number of you saw it. And it was about when NC State, 30 years ago, blessed the Wolfpack, 30 years ago, that they won a national championship. And they played against Houston, this dominating team that everyone thought it wasn't even really going to be a very interesting game to watch. And you know what happened because you live in North... You should know what happened because you live in North Carolina. If you don't, shame on you. <laughs> Repent. Um, but, you know, Derek Wittenberg throws the shot up there one point down, and, and you can tell, oh, I don't think it's going to make it, but it's, you know, second draining off the clock. And what happens? Lorenzo Charles, like Superman out of nowhere, he flies in, he grabs the basketball and dunks it. And what happens at that moment in the Coliseum? Rua! And, and there's poor Jimmy Valvano. Rua! Rua! I can't find anybody to hug. And so he's running around. But, but it's that kind of feeling when Jesus comes into your life. It's rua! It's, it's time to rejoice. It's not sticking your hands in your pocket. Behold, the king of kings is coming, your king, and he is coming for you. It's amazing. And when you get a sense of that, when you get a taste of that, even though your particular circumstances, your little snapshot may be dark right now, but there is an inheritance that is imperishable and protected by God for me forever. So even in that moment, Ruach. I can celebrate. I can rejoice even in that moment. And so is lifting their heads and saying, Look out ahead and, and, and examine what's ha- going to happen and be encouraged. One reason, as I said, that there's such, a, such an expression, an explosion of joy is because the king is coming for You. It's important to understand when you read the Bible that the Bible is God's account of how he gets to you. That's what it records for us. It's God's history. It's God's account of how God gets to you. It's not an instruction book about how you to get to God. It's not to be used that way. It's how God has come to you. And so the real question that we've had since Genesis 3.23, which says this, The Lord God banished man from the Garden of Eden. God drove the man out. God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. See, at that point, the real question is not about how mankind, not about how you can get back to God. That's established as impossible. But whether God will, will have anything to do with us. That's the real question the Bible is trying to address. And the great news is, yes, he will. It's amazing we should have just been pushed out and forgotten about we're we're not really that worthy of chasing but God himself says no but I'm not done I'm going to continue to come after you I'm going to continue to chase after I'm going to run and and I'm never going to get tired and so the bible tells us from genesis chapter 4 through the gospels it's it's one unfolding story about how the king is coming God doesn't doesn't send down a book of instructions, he, he comes down. Aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad he just didn't say, hey, here are the five steps to get there. He came down and said, hey, I'm going to pick you up, and I know the steps, and I can, I can take you home. And think for a moment the distance he had to travel to come down. Behold your king, verse 9, towards the end. Behold your king comes, how humble. Some of your translations may say lowly. The king comes on a donkey. What kind of king is coming? What kind of king do you have to prepare room for? A humble king, a lowly king. And there's... A hundred ways you can consider this. Let me mention a few. Just consider Christ's lowliness or his humility by considering the object of his salvation. Consider how far he had to come down by considering the object of his salvation, which is you. Listen to how the Bible describes me, how it describes you without God. We knew God but we didn't want to give weight to his existence we never thanked him no instead of thanking him we claimed to be wise yet we were fools we we became fools because we exchanged the weight of the immortal god for an image that looked like me we degraded our we degraded ourselves By using our bodies in inappropriate ways, one with another. We exchanged truth for a lie. Our mind was depraved. We we did things that we know shouldn't be done. And we were filled up with wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. We invented new ways to do evil. And even though we know they deserve death, we continue to do them. And then, on top of that, we applauded others who did just like us. That's how the Bible describes somebody without God. So, so you see, the King, when he comes down, he's not coming down to save some noble race. He, He came down to redeem rebels, people with the worst kind of resumes. And you see the distance he has to travel by seeing the lowliness of the object in which he has to get underneath. The distance Christ has to travel just to save me is immeasurable. And so I wonder if you appreciated that lately. The distance Christ had to travel to get to you. We see Christ's lowliness or his humility in the astonishing display of the incarnation. You could see this in a Christmas sermon. The immortal lowers himself to take on mortality, the omnipotent lowers himself to suffer. The one who never sleeps or never slumbers lowers himself to needing a nap. The one who feeds every living creature lowers himself to become hungry. The king lowers himself to become a servant. The infinitely holy lowers himself to become part of a notoriously sinful crowd. The one who created the universe and owns everything lowers himself into poverty. The one who breathed life into Adam lowers himself to having that same life beaten out of him by the sons of Adam. See, as you enter Easter week, it, it would be worth your time to consider and, and marvel the many ways the king lowers himself in order to come to you. And, and you'll know when you've done it properly because it'll really eliminate your own pride. If you're left with pride after that consideration, consider more. You see Christ's lowliness in his associations while he was on earth. The king thirstily comes and waits at a well for an adulterous woman. The king purposely reroutes himself so he could have dinner with a notorious traitor, a thief, an abuser of power named Zacchaeus. The king welcomes children. He puts his hands on lepers. He looks at the poor bleeding woman and he loves her. He embraces a demoniac that comes out of a graveyard to embrace Christ. The king's associations, when he comes, his associations are so low that the pastors and the preachers and the religious people of that time, when they look at him, they say, he must be a drunkard. He must be a glutton. Because he only spends time around people who are always drunk and eating. So he's got to be one of those. And Christ lowers himself to that kind of comment to get to you, to me. And so I wonder if you ever think you're too low to be reached by this kind of king. Can't be. I wonder, of course, you never say this out loud. But if you ever think, well, at least Jesus didn't have to reach that low for me. See, the character of the king is lowliness, humility, and it's a characteristic that must be on display by those who follow after. And of course, there's the visual display here in chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. You probably don't remember, because it'd be a passage that you kind of just in your Bible reading, you just kind of read through it and go, I don't know, what does that mean? You read through it. Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses is giving instructions that when you set yourself up as a nation, you're going to want to have a king. And when you do have a king, I want, to, I want to show you right now the kind of character this king should have. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you take possession of it, and you settle it, and you say, let's have a king over us like all the other nations around. Now listen, this is what he says. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be among your own brothers. He's got to be one of your kind. The king must not acquire great numbers or numbers of horses for himself. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And it goes on. There's only one king that fits this description. You see, the kings of Israel, when they got surrounded by power brokers, To the north and to the south, what did they try to do? They tried to accumulate power like the world accumulates power. And God's saying, I'm not, I'm not that kind of king. I'm a different kind of king and you need a different kind of king. And none of the, none of the people, none of the kings can resist the power. And when Jesus comes in, he's, he's purposely lowering himself, a man with no gold, no silver. He hasn't even accumulated one donkey. He has to borrow it. This is the real king. This is the king of kings. Finally, rejoice. Rejoice, shout aloud because of what the king brings. You see that again, verse 9. He's bringing something. He's coming to you. He has something with him. And it's righteousness and and he has salvation. And the word righteousness in this context is is meant for you to understand it as justice. In other words, this king is going to come and finally he's going to set things right. The king is coming, He's bringing a a kind of justice. And this this justice is going to collide with with every evil deed. It's going to collide with every evil thought. It's going to collide with every evil word. It's going to collide with every evil person. This justice, this great justice that this great king is bringing, is going to collide with everything evil. Everything inappropriate whether it's been in deed or just in a thought. Now, does that sound like good news? No, no. I mean, if you know yourself, no. The person who doesn't know themselves, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of that evil guy over there. But if you know yourself, and his justice is going to collide with every evil word, every evil thought, every evil deed, Who is it going to collide with? You. So I hope he's bringing something other than just justice. And he is. What else is he bringing? Salvation. And here you see justice and salvation coming together in one point in the king of kings. We see something. Zechariah looked out ahead and saw something ahead 500 years. We, we look back and we know something's happened and we see it. And, and we must get our eyes off of ourselves momentarily and say, Yes, I, I see that I'm a part of a, a great unfolding story and that the king has arrived. And now I'm not just waiting on his, his arrival. He says, I'm going to come and live inside of you. And you're going you're gonna to be my witnesses. You're going begin to begin to act like The king, you're going to begin to have his character. And so when we sing and the children come in and sing, Hosanna, which means save now, save us now, Hosanna. See, Christ is coming, please save us. And, of course, they thought it was saving from some evil, oppressive person. And Christ is saying, I'm going to save you from your sin. And we know it happens when Christ hangs in the balance between heaven and earth. And his last breath, he says... It's finished. Well, so many things are finished, but one thing is finished is I've gotten all the way to the lowest point. I've traveled underneath the worst sin. And I'm able to bear it. So you and I bear it no more. That's the gospel. And when when you just get a taste of that, when you... When the king just begins to make a little crack in your heart, do you see it? What happens? Ruah. Joy. Let's pray together. It's a humbling and...